please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, you know what? There's very adult content ahead, and you know what? I have warned you, so that's where we are. (laughs) Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I'm your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, since this is a relatively short week, I figured I will pull out some of the shorter stories that I've had and give you guys not only a quickie, but a two-four as well. Wait a minute, that does not exactly sound right. (laughs) You guys know what I mean. Anyways, as always, we will be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, is going to be up to you, so choose your venom accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say murder, that is going to be a single shot. And every time I say mystery, that's a double shot. Alright, now that we've got our business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's double dark enigma. And the unbelievable icebox murders of Houston, Texas. And for today's double feature, the mystery of room 1046. All right, let's jump into it, my heathens. We're going to start with the icebox murders first. On June 23, 1965, the Houston Police Department in Texas received a call from Marvin Martin asking for a welfare check on his aunt and uncle. Fred Christopher Rogers, 81, and Edwino Rogers, 79, had not been answering their phone. Two police officers knocked on the couple's front door of their home in Montrose. There was no response, so they ended up knocking the door down. There was no sign of the couple, despite being food on the table. One of the officers noticed a very pungent odor coming from the refrigerator. He opened it and saw various cuts of meat, which he believed to be hog meat. The officer, of course, was shocked when he suddenly saw two heads in the lettuce crisper. Yeah, I know, there's a pun in there, but let's not be punny, guys. Fred had been beaten with a claw hammer and had his eyes and genitalia removed. Meanwhile, Edwina had been shot in the head, After they were dead, the killer had dragged the bodies to the master bathroom upstairs. The killer then drained their blood and chopped them into pieces and placed the cuts in the refrigerator. The authorities believe the killer had knowledge in anatomy as the bodies had been neatly cut. Experts say that Fred and Edwina had been murdered three days before. Now, despite the gruesome murders, the house had been 
thoroughly cleaned. Several of the couple's organs were later found in a nearby sewer because apparently the killer had flushed them down the toilet. Charles Frederick Rogers was the immediate suspect. The couple's 43-year-old son, who lived in the attic bedroom, could not be found after the discovery of the bodies. I know, I'm with you guys, red flags going off all over the place. 43-year-old, he's not in the beth, in the basement, but I'm guessing that's because they didn't have a basement. He's in the attic. Okay, seriously, 43-year-olds and you're still living with your mom and dad? That's already creepy. Anyways, Charles was said to be particularly intelligent. He spoke seven languages and had a degree in nuclear physics. He was a pilot in the U.S. Navy during World War II and served in the Office of Naval Intelligence. Afterward, he had become a seismologist for Shell Oil. In 1957, though, Charles inexplicably quit his job of nine years. During the 1950s, Charles joined the Civil Air Patrol, where he is believed to have met David Ferry a man accused of being involved in the plot to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. And for those of you that remember JFK, David Ferry, right? Alright. Though Charles moved in with his parents after quitting his job, he rarely saw them. He and his parents would communicate by passing notes from under his door. Alright, seriously, another red flag right there, right? Most of their neighbors had no idea that he even lived there. Some weren't even aware that Fred and Edwina had a son. The few that knew of Charles's presence said he usually left home before dawn and only returned after dark. What Charles did all day, though, is still unknown. Authorities found a bloodied keyhole saw in his attic bedroom. It was most likely used to cut up the bodies. A nationwide manhunt for Charles was launched, but he was never heard from again. In 1992, John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers, no relation, wrote a book about Charles. They called it The Man on the Grassy Knoll. Craig and Rogers, investigators for the National Intelligence Service Bureau in Texas, believe that Charles was actually a CIA agent from 1956 to the mid-1980s. They also believed that Charles was one of the men who had assassinated President John F. Kennedy and accused him of impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico City. They believe that Charles was one of the three tramps, along with Charles Harrelson, that's right, father of actor Woody Harrelson, pot extraordinaire, and Chauncey Holt, who were arrested in Dallas after the assassination took place. Moreover, they claimed the reason that Charles killed his parents was that they had been listening and keeping track of his calls, possibly knowing too much secret information. According to the book, Charles died many years ago in South America, and at the time of the book's publishing, an investigator said that it was a reasonable theory. However, it has since been criticized for the lack of sources. Forensic accountant Hugh Gardinier and his wife Martha began investigating the case in 1997. 
The couple, they don't believe that Charles was a CIA agent at all. Although he did have dealing with a CIA contract worker when he was a seismologist. The couple who put, who published the book, The Icebox Murders, which by the way, I have read and is so freaking good. They believe that Charles was emotionally and physically abused as a child and as an adult by his parents. And at the time of their deaths, Edwina and Fred were reportedly faking their son's signature on deeds of land that he had owned. Fred, who had been a bookie, had also been involved in illegal gambling and fraud. The house in which they all lived belonged to Charles, and he wasn't happy that Edwina had taken out loans on it and kept the money for herself. The Gardiniers believed that he planned his parents' murders for years. Charles, with the help of people that he had met while working for oil and mining companies, is said to have run away to Mexico. Afterward, he went on to Honduras, where he was killed over a wage dispute with miners. Now, this book has also drawn criticism and has been called a work of fact-based fiction. And Charles's fate is still unknown, but he was pronounced dead in 1975. And the Icebox murders remain unsolved to this very day. Whew, well, I don't know about you, but that story freaks me out a little bit. Like, finding a head in the lettuce crisper, I mean, really, that is just too fucking gruesome. Alright, now I promised you a double feature, and here is our double feature, The Mystery of Room 1046. On, July, on January 2nd, 1935, a man checked into room 1046 at the Hotel President in Kansas City. His name, according to the hotel register, was Roland T. Owen, and his home address was in Los Angeles. He had a cauliflower ear, brown hair, and a horizontal scar on his scalp. He had no luggage with him except for a hairbrush, a comb, and toothpaste. That same day that Owen checked into the hotel, a maid stopped by room 1046, and according to her, she said, Owen seemed frightened. The blinds were shut tight and the room's only source of light came from a very small lamp. After the maid was done cleaning the room, Owen asked her to leave the door unlocked because he was expecting a friend. Later, when the maid returned with fresh towels, she saw a note on the dresser that said, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The next morning, the maid returned to room 1046. It was locked from the outside, so she assumed that Owen had gone out. However, to her surprise, Owen was in the room, meaning that someone else had stopped by previously and locked Owen in. Just like the previous night, Owen was sitting in the dark, and then the phone rang. Owen answered and said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry, I just had breakfast. That same day, a motorist by the name of Robert Lane picked up a man near the hotel president. The man apparently told Lane that he was going to kill someone tomorrow. Later on, Lane identified the stranger he had picked up as Owen. 
That night, when the maid returned to room 1046 with fresh towels, she was turned away by a gruff-sounding man. The next morning, the hotel staff noticed that the telephone in room 1046 was off the hook. A bellboy was sent up to the room, where he discovered Owen lying in a puddle of blood. It was obvious that Owen had been tortured. When the police asked Owen who did this to him, he answered, nobody. His wounds, according to him, were the result of him falling against the bathtub. And, mysteriously, his clothes were missing. When the people tried, when, I'm sorry, when the police tried to confirm Owen's identity, they found that Roland T. Owen did not exist. Owen, who had by now become John Doe, died in the hospital from his wounds and was to be buried in the potter's field. However, an anonymous call came asking for the burial to be postponed until funds for a proper funeral were wired. Thirteen flowers were sent for the funeral and were signed, Love Forever, Louise. In 1936, a woman read about the case and thought that Owen looked a lot like her friend's missing son, Artemis Ogletree. Ogletree's mother confirmed that the man from room 1046 was indeed her son, but the case wasn't able to progress any further. Police never found the mysterious Dawn, and they could never trace the mysterious woman named Louise, who funded the funeral and sent the flowers. And the case remains open and unsolved to this very day. Well, my darlings, that's all the show I have for you this week. I warned you it was going to be a quickie, and it was a double feature. So, you know, do with that what you will. But I did want to take a moment and express my undying gratitude for each and every one of you throughout this year. Knowing that you've been listening and enjoying the stories that I share with you really warms my heart and keeps me motivated to find more stories and even deeper mysteries. So from me to each and every one of you, thank you. Have a safe and wonderful Thanksgiving. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of the episode. I thank you for joining me as always, and I hope that you'll take the time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for future shows or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to all emails. And on that note, that's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. See you, my heathens. Be careful on the roads. And those of you that are turkeys, stay away from ovens because I need you back here. Love you, my darlings. Mwah! We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.